0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're claiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have for you an interview with Elizabeth Katt, the author of What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. So we really
1: loved getting to talk to Elizabeth about this book, and she actually holds a PhD in public history from Middle Tennessee State University and owns a historical consulting company as well. So it was really cool to get to talk to her.
0: Yeah. And as we are both from Appalachia, we really have been kind of disgruntled about the coverage of the region in the last few years and also Hillbilly Elegy. So we're very excited to hear her take on what's going on in that region. And this book is kind of like her response to recent events and the coverage that Appalachia has been getting.
1: And it's an area that really doesn't get a lot of publicity. And that's kind of part of the reason, too, like just to bring this book on people's radars.
0: Exactly. And, you know, we do cover a lot of viewpoints and walks of life on this podcast. We like to try to learn more about the world uh, through the books that we read and the authors that we talk to. But we realize that the region that we come from is often a different walk of life for other people. So we also wanted to pay homage to where we came from and respect that. And uh, this is a great book to do that with.
1: So here is our interview with Elizabeth Cat about her book,
0: What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. So we're here today with Elizabeth Cat, the author of What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And we're just so excited to talk to you today, Elizabeth. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, thanks so much. I'm really excited to talk to you, too.
1: As Kendra and I were telling you earlier, we're both from the region. So when Kendra, actually what happened is Kendra sent me a photo of this book. <laughs> and in all caps and exclamation points was
2: like, you have to read this immediately.
1: <laughs> and so um, we were just delighted to get to read it.
2: Oh, that's I. That means I mean so much to me. I have um, like um, always a moderate amount of anxiety when people in the region and people you know who grew up in the area or lived here for a long time get a hold of the book. So I'm so happy that you both enjoyed it.
0: Awesome. Oh, yes, definitely we were talking about this earlier, but I was actually in Kentucky visiting my parents and I found it at their library and I hadn't been able to find it at my library. So I took it home and I like told the internet I'd finally found it and (laughs) uh, like took photos of it, posted all over Instagram and I just fell in love immediately. Um, So we're so excited to share your book today with our listeners and to talk to you about it. So um, for our listeners, though, who haven't read your book or haven't heard about it, um, could you tell us a little bit about what You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia is about and what inspired you to write the book?
2: Yeah, so the book is um, a very digestible, 150-page read through the history of Appalachia, starting with the media perceptions of the region that kind of coalesced after the 2016 presidential election and the popularity of Hillbilly Elegy. And those sort of happened at the same time. So we start at that point and we move backwards, um, always anchored to um, cultural representations and media representations of the region to explain to, to readers and also to kind of like fist bump with people in the region who might be have experienced this for a long time, this phenomenon where Appalachia is um, perpetually othered used to represent kind of a dark corner of America that defies progress and always sort of votes and acts against its own self-interest. So I try to demystify where those attitudes come from and how they're embedded in not only just representations in the region, but also a very economic system as well to give uh, a little bit more nuance and to... To add some people who have, um, you know, some types of people who have been left out of the region for a long time, and and the works that get really popular. So anybody that's non-white, um, women are often left out of conversations about Appalachia. Anybody that has progressive politics, LGBTQ people are often left out of the region. Um, the long history of activism has been really cited in recent um, coverage. So trying to mash those all back together and give readers something that's a little bit more um, realistic.
1: Yeah. And as a, what you said about like how women and minorities and activists are often excluded from that narrative as a woman living in the South. Like when I first started digging into like where I was from, that was one thing that I noticed. I was like, where are all the women in these stories? Like, I know they're here because I see them. Um, So yeah, it was just really refreshing to get that take on it. And you define this in the book, but what, how would you define like the region of Appalachia? Like so, the geographical location.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's complicated, um, and it's good to kind of be flexible in the way that, um, you know, we define Appalachia. But I usually just, you know, use the ARCs, the Appalachian Regional Commission's definition as a starting point, which is uh, parts of 13 states um, that start in Alabama and continue all the way up into um, New England. The, mountain, the Appalachian Mountains continue into Canada. West Virginia is the only state entirely within Appalachia. So obviously, as the name suggests, it follows the arc of the Appalachian Mountains. There's about um, 20 million people that live um, in the region. It's a 420 counties. Um, depopulation is a huge issue in the region, so it's hard to get a handle, you know, on demo, uh, on d- demographics sometimes. But those are the that's the baseline definition. Um, and then, of course, there's there's lots of ways that you can kind of dig into that and and um, pull it apart. For example, there's parts of Appalachia that were culturally part of the region. So where I currently live, the Shenandoah Valley, that you know didn't get included in the ARC's definition because they were um, not as poor. For example, there's also um, a lot of historical baggage through colonization that you know impacts the way that the region is shaped as well. So. Um, those are really great discussions to have, but for a starting place, yeah, 13 states, 420 counties, 20 million people. And I I really
0: appreciate you starting off defining Appalachia because I didn't realize, you know, I grew up in a, on the Ohio River basically, and I knew I was neither north nor south. And in the East Coast, there's only north or south. They don't talk about anything else. And then I was researching it obsessively. <laughs> poor Autumn was graciously gone on this ride with me, uh, but, uh, I discovered that where I grew up was actually part of Appalachia and I like all of a sudden everything clicked in my head that we always typically think of Appalachia as just West Virginia. Yeah, I just appreciate you doing that because it really gave just a huge scope of like it's so much bigger than we ever thought it was.
2: Right, right, right. And it really, um, and once you start looking at the definitions of Appalachia and the geographic boundaries of the region, it starts to make less sense the way that people have been talking about it for so long, especially mainstream media. um, Because if you look at a place like, you know, Chattanooga, for example, which is in East Tennessee, you're going to get a whole different demographic package than you would uh, a state like West Virginia or West Virginia coal country to be specific. So, yeah, it's we when when I talk about it, I like to say that there are like many, many Appalachias, there's urban, there's rural, there's, you know, mountainous regions, there's valleys, um, people who are river folk. So it's big.
1: It's funny, too, because the regions, my spouse, he's actually from Williamsburg, Virginia. And like one of the arguments that we arguments in quotes we had often when we first started dating was that, i was like you're not really from the south because williamsburg is totally new england kind of a thing <laughs> you know i still bang on that but it's true like you know i i have family in roanoke virginia and it's i remember as a kid like going up there and thinking where am i in this really strange place but it's like actually like the same region um but it's so diverse which i don't think yeah. a lot of people understand
0: yeah very multifaceted and You know, we'll get into this a little bit, but like people talk about Appalachia is like a monolith, like we're all the same sitting up in our overalls, sitting up and drinking moonshine up in some shack and up the hall or somewhere.
1: You know, as we mentioned, a lot of the book is dedicated to responding to the coverage of Appalachia both before and after the 2016 presidential election. And just for our listeners, like what were some of the things that were problematic about that coverage and what has that role or what role has that portrayal of Appalachia played in politics at large since that election?
2: Yeah, so, so what the phenomenon that we saw a lot um, during the 20, 2016 presidential election, you know, it, it's something that happens quite often in Appalachia, which was parachute journalism. Um, reporters would come into areas like uh, eastern Kentucky or West Virginia coal country, kind of hang out for a couple of days, um, talk to people, and then carry away stories, which um, they hoped would help make what was happening political make sense uh, in a really, you know, a really like uncomplicated and digestible way. And so the story that they came away with was that there's a um, a crisis of economic anxiety in America, most seen in you know hard scrabble places like McDowell County, West Virginia, where the coal industry has been declining for decades, where people are incredibly poor where the government has wholesale abandoned communities. And so they sold this as something that would help make the phenomenon of Donald Trump's popularity click or make sense. Um, and I think it was really popular because it allowed people to, to talk about something which was obviously very pressing. And this was before Trump you know, became a viable political candidate in some respects, but you know, talk about what happened and kind of separate it from discussions of race and racism. Um, because economics was was sort of a cleaner package to to get into, and it was very striking to have that narrative paired with um, these really stark images of Appalachia, like in uh, the Guardian or or the or the New Yorker, people who were very poor, houses um, that were kind of what they claimed to be falling over, that kind of thing. So this was you know a full package that that was really going to anchor the election to something that made sense to people, especially people outside the region. This is a phenomenon that happens so often. Um, And what I thought of immediately when I started seeing these stories was, you know, Johnson's war on poverty that happened in the 1960s, where capturing images and stories about down and out white Americans transformed itself into an entire media industry. Um, The difference was politics were a little bit rosier. Back in you know back in, back back in that, um, so it wasn't qu- you know quite the same um, context. But definitely, what the two had in common was um, wanting to get away from talk- from having hard conversations about race and racism by presenting um, down and out white Americans who were thought to defy evidence of you know things that we talk about when we talk about white privilege and sort of like leading you know leading conversations with those. And these are um, really ghastly when you when I, I digest them as a person from the region because what I know to be true, both as a person who um, has lived in Appalachia my entire life, but also as a historian, is that poor people, you know, the, the closer you are to poverty, the the less likely you are to vote because of you know choice or circumstance or, or other factors, and so this narrative that poor people um, we're in the driver's seat of some really life changing politics. Didn't make a lot of sense to me. Of course, what happens is that J.D. Vance's memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, is published in the summer of 2016. And that really kind of seals off the narrative and kind of blankets it in a first person story that imparted a lot of authority that really shored up everything that the media was saying and, and pundits were speculating about Appalachia. And our political moment, too.
0: I really loved how you went into the discussion of uh, what you call Trump country pieces and how those played a role both before and after the election and the shift in that. And one of the things I kept thinking of while I was reading your book was I really love the podcast Embedded. It's from NPR and they did an entire series on coal country. Mm -hmm. And it was this portrayal of Appalachia from an outsider's perspective. And that's exactly what you were talking about is people like the the parachute journalism going in and looking at that and trying to explain Appalachia by just like talking to people. It was like, we don't, it was like they were trying to give us voices rather than letting us speak for ourselves. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, what is going on with the narrative too, is that people um, generally, I mean, and there are like, there are exceptions as well, but, you know, Appalachian people aren't exactly overrepresented in the media. Um, everything, you know, every kind of limitation that is associated with poverty, you know, you will find here. And all of those are certainly at play in the media and in, in within journalism. And so, you know, you have exceptions like Sarah Jones, who writes for, for New Republic, for example, who did fantastic pieces about Appalachia during the election. But largely um, speaking, you know, you know, local media had a very tense relationship with national media during the election. And, and you know, it was really a case. It was really a case of, of, of not a lot of people who, you know, had had experience living in poverty, were from rural areas, were sensitive to talking about issues of class. All of those perspectives were, were largely absent from the, from the individuals that were writing pieces about Appalachia and, and other rural areas like the Rust Belt during the election.
0: You talk about the approach to that and how it's following a long history of othering Appalachia, and you mentioned that in your description. Um, why do you think that the country has kept othering Appalachia, and, and why is that so important to them?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, this is obviously something I think about a lot. Um, and it's important to kind of ground everything in the realization that Appalachians are by far the only, not the only people that um, experience othering, like this whole country was built on the othering of, you know, black and native peoples, but within Appalachia, it has a specific purpose to, I think, make a brutal, you know, a brutal economic manifestation. The realities of, of a very brutal form of capitalism makes sense. And if we go back and, and start, I think, you know, kind of around, like, the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, when the timber industry and the coal industry um, were really kind of creating monopolies and in, in their dominion in the region, in order to make that happen, you had to dehumanize the people that were living here and make them into an almost commodity themselves. And, of course, um, some of the white settlers who had been living in the region had already done that to, to indigenous populations. So it was a continuation of that. But othering, dehumanizing, presenting people as as defective or doomed or in need of intervention, Um, all of the things that, you know, our longstanding Appalachian stereotypes, you know, revolve around really had a specific economic purpose to, um, you know, let people exploit the dignity and labor of populations who lived and worked in proximity to these really um, exploitive industries like coal. The passage
1: in your book where you talk about how the coal companies would—buy is not the right term—force people off their property and then to buy buy it, yeah, that really— resonated with me in the sense of like and it was really offensive also like it hurt me in a sense because it's like I grew up in the mountains and the thought of someone like treating the mountain that way really <laughs> I get really emotional about that kind of thing but I was thinking even too about like having grown up in you know the Tennessee Valley near like TVA and things yeah. like that and how they've still like I mean I still have memories of like them flooding places and things that they shouldn't have, or taking advantage of people that way. But I never really tied it back to capitalism and economic situations until reading your book.
2: Oh, absolutely! Listen, um, I have things to say about the TVA. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, you know, my family—they um, were some of the people whose land was flooded. There's there's one narrative about the experiences of people like that that said, well, you know, it was for a good reason. You know the, the it brought electrification to the region. It helped people who were living in you know not great circumstances. It gave them a push to migrate. But then you can like look and say, well, you know, the TVA didn't actually use that land. It sold it because a lot of it, a lot of what they they claimed was surplus. And then there's like the continuing narrative in East Tennessee that the TVA likes to use about um, sacrifice. So every time I go. Home, um, there's some kind of news, you know, history news special. There is a, a program in East Tennessee called the Heartland series that was really popular. Um, yeah. Yep, <laughs> yep. And so they like to say, well, they, you know, look at what these people gave so that our country could be better and get, you know, electricity and stuff like that. And that wasn't really what happened. What happened is there was a need for the land and somebody took it. And that's basically the story of, of America. And so many, so many different population groups have experienced that kind of brute force and that plunder. Um, Appalachia is just um, one, you know, one kind of corner on that, that quilt.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And you talk too about how people keep almost rediscovering Appalachia and campaigning to help and all these kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about like why that happens and does it actually do any good or does it do more harm than good?
2: Yeah, this is a bit, I mean, it's a big debate, um, especially recently, because I think, you know, what we find if you pay, pay close attention to um, news coverage about and particularly news coverage relating to economic development, is that theories and suggestions and ways to save Appalachia haven't really shifted much. So, for example, in the 1960s, there was um, a lot of injection of capital and wealth into Appalachia through the war on poverty to do things like create schools, fix roads, improvements of, of that nature, but it really didn't do a great job putting wealth or, or assistance in the hands of local people. It went into this thing that was, you know, we 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 came to call a, a poverty industry. So there were people who worked in, you know, maybe nonprofits who were administering aid um, for poor people or political agencies. They were there to administer aid to poor people, journalists who were there to cover stories and take pictures of, of poor people, even religious organizations and educational organizations were there to sort of administer aid to poor people. And obviously, they didn't work because Appalachia is still poor. It's not like that they were, you know, some of them. Like, great people have passed through um, many, you know, organizations in Appalachia that are there to, you know, quote-unquote fix the region. But I think that it's it's something that was always going to be incomplete with the current economic system as it, you know, as it is in the region. But fast forward three, four decades, we're still kind of piecing out those same questions. We have um, venture capitalism has replaced, in some respects, like the poverty, the core of the poverty industry, but it's still, you know a question of who is going to save Appalachia? Who is going to save it? Um, and it's always a, a conversation that feels, you know, ar- the, the arbitration takes place through experts that don't really experience the realities of the people that they want to save, so it's always incomplete. I tend to think that this whole conversation is a cover for plunder of resources. So mm. when, when people say, oh, we're going to fix Appalachia, we're going to... Um, you know, for example, bring business to the region. Well, you know, nobody does anything for for pure, you know, altruism anymore. So a lot of a lot of this, both historically and in, in the present day, has sort of been to to kind of give um, you know a robe of of nobility to just plain old business transactions that people want to. Um, to to, to want to take place over Appalachia because there's a compliant workforce here. The land is cheap, things of that nature.
0: I really, I mean, call me a nerd, but I really found your portrayal of the history of Appalachia very riveting. I hadn't read (laughs) so much of this and I was just turning pages and like underlining everything In an instant of his life, Uh, I I was afraid I would run out of like flags uh, to put in it. Um, But one of the things that, after you were talking about the war on poverty, about like the people keep rediscovering, and one of those things that Mm. came up was eugenics. And Mm. I was new to eugenics until I read the the Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee, and he covers mm-hmm. eugenics uh, right before the World War two, War and kind of like the history of that a little bit. But I had no idea that it had come into Appalachia. I didn't either. It, I I was just like, Autumn, what is this? Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And I was like reading passage out loud to my husband, like, can you believe this? And he's just like, wow. And um, before I get too far into my gushing about it um can you talk a little bit about how that came into the region and the thought behind that and why they felt that people in the region needed to be like genetically culled for lack of a better term
2: yeah it's a dark history and, and eugenics is um you know the history of eugenics is complicated there's you know different different periods but I will use Virginia as an example because I live in Virginia and some of the the examples that I use are from Virginia but eugenic sterilization was legal in Virginia from I think 1924 to 1978 or 79 so it's a huge period of time oh Goodness, yeah where where forced and compulsory sterilization was a legal practice authorized by the supreme court The the example that I use in the book to introduce, you know, the concept of eugenics and how it's kind of shaped Appalachia is the development of the Shenandoah National Park, which is um, a couple miles from where I live. But um, to make a long story short, there were farmer farming populations that lived in the area in the 1920s and 1930s, where the government wanted to build um, a state park as part of uh, the New Deal effort to modernize. Um, the country and, you know, put put people to work, but also um, develop land that was thought to be marginalized. And a state park achieved that. The farmers, obviously, and this is similar to, to what happened in the Tennessee Valley, didn't want to move. Um, they liked where they were living. They, they had generational connections to the land. And the the way that the government could facilitate that most efficiently was to say that these people were defective um, and it was in their best interest for them to be forcibly removed from the land, um, and taken somewhere where they would have an easier life, more access, you know, better access to resources. But of course, it's you know it's hard to like put that genie back in the bottle. And once it was out, once everyone started looking at the mountains of Virginia as a place where really defective um, people lived, where they were, you know, quote unquote, overbreeding, people who believed in 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 eugenics, so the idea that we could, you know genetically engineer a better population through restrictive breeding you know, they were really really excited to, to experiment and to kind of put, put their theories in practice in Virginia. And a lot of the people that the government w- was going to relocate, they were institutionalized and many were sterilized, including many children. And you know, those those kind of projects and they didn't you know they didn't go away. We have, you know, a really, really dark legacy of of eugenics in, in Virginia. Again, it was something that was practiced until until the late 1970s. The if so, if you if you kind of like look at Appalachian stereotypes, and you know everybody knows what a hillbilly is. Um, but if you think about you know what the implications are for some of those ideas, and you have um, associations with, for example, inbreeding, or you know illiteracy, um, substance abuse, um, things of that nature those are those are qualities that people who um, were very interested in you know population control would use uh, as a as a pretext to kind of you know conduct various <laughs> various forms of ethnic cleansing. Um, and so that's you know one of the reasons why I think it's very important to kind of understand um, the history of these ideas that have shaped Appalachia because a lot of them were put to very dark purpose.
1: Yeah, I had no idea that was part of the history of the region yeah very nefarious for sure as far as like stereotypes and things like i was glad that you talked about the scotch irish part of the people of appalachia and kind of delved into that history a little bit because it is something that's very prevalent and actually weirdly enough i was in ireland a couple of years ago and I told someone who was from there that I was from Tennessee and he was like, no way. He's like, your ancestors are from Scotland. And like launched into like this whole thing about like where I was from or whatever. And it was really strange, but (laughs) yeah, it was really strange. But what has like that idea or how does like the Scotch Irishness or the belief of the Scotch Irishness and whiteness of the area affect the region and how it's viewed?
2: So this is a really really like fascinating fascinating topic to me um, because it's so in, you know it's so incomplete. I think we're still seeing like up until maybe like a couple of days ago I could give you examples about the weirdness of ideas about Scotch Irishness in Appalachia. But generally speaking there's there's a myth that suggests that um, the culture of Appalachia is predominantly Scotch Irish, which is not a mixture of Irish and Scottish people, but a particular kind of you know Scottish ethnicity, that that is is a real thing that was attached to East Tennessee and North Carolina in particular during you know white European settlement. It's not the only European ethnicity that is found in in Appalachia, and it's not the only racial or or ethnic you know credentials. There's people of African origin, people obviously people of Indigenous origin. And Appalachia as well, but the exaggeration of this particular distillation, Scotch Irishness, has had is you know a, a continues to be a talking point about the region. The best example, of course, is is J D Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which uses this monolithic culture idea to explain why he thinks the region, in part, is suffering so badly and has become you know sort of a victim of its own identity. But I think I think you can you should also like pull back and see what this would actually mean if it were true. It would mean that the the rightful, quote-unquote, rightful population of Appalachia is white, which is inappropriate and accurate for you know, a lot of different reasons. It would mean that, you know, things that have to do with migration or or the his, you know, the historic settlement of Appalachia were untrue. It just gets into a whole complicated areas about what people are saying when they when they talk about who is the rightful you know, the rightful population of of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And there are people there are people who genuinely um either you know, share this ancestry or, or believe that they share ancestry. And so I'm not suggesting that they're, you know, like out there selling a pack of lies or anything like that. But, you know, we have to kind of also question why there's a best-selling book that argues this about Appalachia that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are read and now believe to be true and why people, you know, need those myths about Appalachia to persist. Um, there's some very, like, scary white supremacist groups in Appalachia that anchor their ideology to the belief that Appalachia is the rightful homeland of, you know, white populations. Stephen Stahl, who wrote a book called Ramp Paulo, is very, very good about this. Um, If anybody is looking for like a longer read that talks about particularly um, the settlement periods of Appalachia and are, you know, kind of history nerds and things like that, I would recommend checking that out. But I am very interested in my work kind of demystifying why it is that when people think about Appalachia, you know, the person that pops in their head is um, sort of like a folksy white person.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate your take on Hillbilly Elegy because I, you know, when I first saw it, I was kind of excited because finally, like you never see Appalachian people in books. Right. And I was like, oh, OK, this is so cool right. because my dad grew up very near where his grandparents grew up and I grew up in a Ohio factory town like he grew up in. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so similar. And I had suffered such huge culture shock when I left Appalachia the South. And I was so excited. And then I read it, and I had a lot of feelings. I was trying to work through it. But the more I read about him, the more I was concerned. But like, I didn't have the words to articulate it. I mean, besides the fact he says Appalachia, it's like, yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, wait, you have betrayed us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, so I was, I was very happy to read your book, because I'd read other articles on it that didn't like it. And I was like, mm-hmm. but you're not really explaining exactly what's wrong with it. And you go into it in so much detail about how Vance handles the topic of the Scotch irish in uh, his memoir and why it is so problematic. So you've, you've touched on that a little bit with the Scots-Irish heritage, but what about it do you find so problematic and, and what is so harmful for society at large that just might not know any better when they read the memoir?
2: So if you look at the subtitle of Hillbilly Elegy, it will say, you know, a memoir of a family and a memoir of a culture in crisis. And a memoir of a culture is not a thing that exists. I mean, of course it is because J.D. Vance wrote a book and, and, you know, he called it that, but it's not, you know, it's not a genre. It's it's a, you know, a kind of thing that has been invented by publishers to uh, popularize, these almost deterministic texts. And I think um, maybe Amy, she was, you know, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother is another good example of text in that genre. And she also happens to be um, J.D. Vance's old instructors at Yale Law School. So that makes a lot of sense. But the belief that there's, you know, cultural explanations for things that are that are wrong and very superficial cultural explanations for things that are wrong in the country in the case of Appalachia, it would be people who have let themselves be victims of fatalism, who are genetically prone to substance abuse, who are shiftless and lazy. And this is not anything that's new to Appalachia. Um, and you know, my argument would be to pull it back even further and, and understand that, that many of those myths also take root in stereotypes about um, African-American families as well. But these aren't just myths. (laughs) They're used to shape policy. They're used to jumpstart political careers, as we can see um, in the case of J.D. Vance himself, who is um, probably going to make a play for the Ohio Senate here um, in a couple of years, the next time that he's eligible. So these, you know, these aren't, these aren't just like things that irritate me. And I write, you know, angry blog posts about them. These are these these are ideas that people with power have about people who don't have a lot of power um, and they deserve to be interrogated and pushed back against um, and demystified and rebuked um, because they're not true. I don't think, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, what what do you think would have happened if J.D. Vance had just, you know, stuck to writing about his own family? I don't ever think that, that was part of the deal, um, I think that this is a very, you know, specific kind of genre that publishers have worked very hard to make happen. Um, a cultural explainer, for lack of a better word, you know, it's it's achieved so much popularity that I don't think it'll be going away anytime soon. And it's so funny to me, um, I've had people tell me a couple of times that, um, you know, if, you know, maybe I should, maybe I don't appreciate JD Vance, but maybe I could see him as like the white Ta-Nehisi Coates because he's trying he's giving you know underrepresented people a voice and i think that is so telling about the way that people look at at, at authors who come from quote unquote underrepresented backgrounds mm-hmm. like there there never needs to be more than one at the same time there only needs to be one perspective and that's like the perspective that we're going to going to go with because we're not you know it's we're too busy to read more widely than that but it's a very very it's a dangerous phenomenon the people who are experiencing success in these genres don't have the best ideas and most concerning is they're willing to put them to work and you know in in the political sphere so well put <laughs> i don't even have a follow up question
0: no, yeah, I I appreciate you're saying that about him representing Appalachia because also I feel like when I was reading some reviews and watching some interviews with him that I feel like he believes the stereotypes that have been told about his own culture. Like you said, like Appalachia already has struggles with the stereotypes and people thinking that, you know, we're marrying our cousins and like, you know, the the whole joke about, you know, West Virginia naming the the, the toothbrush. Yeah. Um <laughs> that he has kind of just expanded that and made it sound more academic. And now that we're heading into this movie about his life by Ron Howard, it's like we have to face it all over again, like all the think pieces and reviews and stuff, which is why I think it's important to talk about his book and, and why it has has so many issues.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, like even more context to this is it's going to be a bestseller. I mean, it's going to be a movie, but it's been assigned to... Like thousands and thousands of um, college freshmen and sophomores. Oh
0: my goodness! Um, and
2: even and even high school students. So I get I get so many letters from you know people who are instructors at universities that have assigned this book. They're like, I'm really glad you wrote this because like my university is forcing all incoming freshmen to read it. Um, and you know we're not we don't like have a counterpoint to that because you know of course. Um, Appalachian history at large is just really underrepresented on curriculums nationwide, even within Appalachia.
1: Yeah, I agree. And also, I think one of the things I thought was really important about what you said earlier in this interview and in your book, too, is how this focus on poor white people just distracts from, you know, these larger issues about racism in this country. And it, it made me wonder as I was reading, like, is it coincidental that all this focus on Appalachia came up like when Black Lives Matter and other movements were really gaining some momentum, absolutely um, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that that's important too, just to kind of interrogate why people are so fixated on this. So, yeah.
2: And I want people in in the region to to understand, and many many do. That um, this kind of attention does does both groups a disservice. It, mm-hmm. it does, you know, for, for, it is poor white people who are used as sort of like um, I don't know a, a shield to get out of awkward conversations and important discussions. Um, and it does a disservice to the people who's, whose whose interests and, and realities are being dismissed. My you know my position is that the that there's there's a fear that will. Because these are my politics, but there'll be a fear that that we'll be able to connect our interests across various groups of, of poor individuals, um, and see that we have you know quite a lot in common that can be used as a foundation for for different kinds of organizing, and so keeping us you know kind of set apart, but also focused on uh, the condition of you know white groups and, and white populations is really kind of a very it's a strategy, it's a very successful one, but a strategy nonetheless.
1: Sure. And that is the perfect note to end on to <laughs> wrap up our discussion of your book. But one thing we always like to ask authors who we have on the podcast is, like, who some of their favorite female writers are. And we wanted to ask you in particular if there were any female Appalachian writers who you would recommend, either fiction or nonfiction.
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Jessica Wilkerson has a new book coming out whose Its name is Escaping Me. It's due out in December 2018. but It's a nonfiction work of history that's going to be all about women's organizing in Appalachia. And Jessica does um, occasional writing for the public. So she writes for Rewire magazine from time to time, for example. And she is fantastic. Um, anybody that wants to know more about the region and specifically women's issues, you know, Google her up and check out um, her work. I have been really into um, poets lately. And so let me recommend um, Crystal Buckleson, who has her most recent work was um, The Birds of Opulence, which is just fantastic. Um, There's a new book club called Open Canon Book Club that's all online on the internet that has been started by an Appalachian writer. And that's its first selection. And I really am digging uh, Rebecca Gay Howell's Poetry as well. So if, if your readers look up any of those authors, um, you will not be disappointed. No,
0: that sounds absolutely wonderful. And for our listeners who are also looking for more, you have a great reading list in the back of your book. Yes! Uh, that I intend to go through like a little check checkmark um, and continue my research obsession here.
2: Yeah. And there's movies and stuff and photographs too. So even people who are like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have it in me to like read another, read another book this month. If you're bored, there's like YouTube documentaries and art collections and all that kind of stuff for people who, you know, digest culture, however it comes.
0: Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I know I will be looking up these things. So yeah, thank you so much for all of the recommendations. Thank you. You just, this book just came out this year. So if you don't want to jinx it, we understand. Are you working on anything right now for the future?
2: Yeah, I just um I just signed the contract for my next two books. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks. But I, I'm going to be writing more about the eugenics movement. Oh my goodness. Um, is what I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of, like, so many people said that they had no idea that that history was in their backyard and they were you know wanted to know more about it they thought the stories were really you know moving and they were interested to know how that connects how that history connects to the present so I'm going to take them through it
0: that's amazing I will I'll be first in line to pre-order that one (laughs) (laughs)
2: thanks so much
0: thank you so much
1: Elizabeth for coming on the podcast to talk to us about your book we really enjoy talking to you
2: oh likewise thank you both so much
0: So that was our interview with Elizabeth Kat. We just just love talking to her, and I feel like we could have talked to her for several more hours. We
1: probably could have, and it took a lot of restraint on my part not to want to talk to her about experiences from my own upbringing. She's just such a joy to
0: talk to. She is, and I feel like uh, we learned so much through this interview, not just, you know, we read the book and it's absolutely amazing and then we learned even more through talking through her. So I'm really excited about the books that she's working on in the future. So me too. And I'm definitely going to tackle that recommended research list in the back of this book as well. Yes. Yes. There needs to be little check boxes next to everyone so I can just like check it off. <laughs> I know. As I, I read know. through it. Oh, uh, that's so that's so wonderful. So we will quit gushing. That's our show. Thank you for listening to this interview, guys. Uh, we would like to thank Elizabeth Cat for talking to us about what you're getting wrong about Appalachia, which is out now from Belt Publishing. You can find her on her website, ElizabethCat.com, or on uh, her social media at Cat, and all of those things we linked in our show notes.
1: And as always, you can find Reading Women on social media at The Reading Women. You can also find us at our website, readingwomenpodcast.com. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.